Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Cube Group Podcast. This is episode two. I'm your host, Scott, and today I'm joined by none other than Ben Shrum, Managing Director of Cube. Ben, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Scott. Thank you for having me for podcast number two. Really excited about this digital media for our organisation. <laughs> Exciting times, isn't it? <laughs> so we'll get, we'll get straight into it. Mm-hmm. A couple of days ago, Ben and I were talking about the seven deadly sins of leadership. There was also a book published, um, I think, a couple of years ago by Cameron Morrissey. Uh, anyway, in his book, he presents the seven traits or sins that Cameron sees as emblematic of poor leadership. They range from sins such as gluttony, in which he listed things like lack of delegation or being a micromanager, through to pride, which includes things like never listening or, or lack of trust. Now, being in the public sector, however, it, it got us wondering how these sins applied to public value leaders. And in particular, Ben wondered if there were seven aspiring virtues of public value leadership. So, Ben, you've given this the most thought. What are these seven virtues and how did you come to identify these? Thanks, Scotty. Well, I mean, one of the things that we have the, the privilege of um, of seeing in our role as a public value consultancy is a range of different leadership styles from individuals around um, around public value organisations and within them. And that includes both local councils, um, community service organisations, state government, federal government um, and public entities. And there are a, there's a diverse range of different sort of leadership styles that we um, we're exposed to, um, and, and one of the things as you, you know, over time um, really join the dots on those is that you see where um, those leadership styles have the greatest impact, mm. and where um, individuals that um, apply them are inspiring their people, uh, achieving great things for their organisation, um, and attracting people to, to work with them and for them, and also to make, make the biggest difference. Um, mm. So really, it was a matter of us just sort of reflecting, stopping and reflecting mm. on what we're seeing and saying, well, let's sort of, let's come up with a bit of a list of what we think some of the behaviours that we're seeing are that are most impactful of, um, of inspirational public value leaders. Yeah. Let me take you through them. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Well, so we've got seven, uh, a little bit like the seven habits of, of highly effective people for a bit of Stephen Covey influence. <laughs> um, let's go. So the first is that they understand the positive difference their organisation is making. Mm-hmm. The second is that they shape a contemporary culture that excites their team. Mm-hmm. The third is that they're willing to challenge long-held norms. The fourth is that they separate business as usual from planning and projects. The fifth is that they create change readiness instead of change fatigue. It's a really interesting one, that actually, which we can, we can lots yeah. talk about. Yep. Um, and that's quite fast emerging, I think, amongst our clients, that, that distinction. Uh, the sixth is that they look outside their organisation for inspiration and leverage. Again, something that we're seeing more and more. And seventh, that they embrace creative and digital to achieve uh, their strategy. Yeah, and that, that sounds really quite appropriate. It resonates with me quite a fair bit in terms of uh, my recent experiences in, in you know, observing public value leaders, seeing some of these traits and seeing, this, especially where some of them... Um, exemplify some of these traits and seeing how much of an impact that they can have on their organisation. So that, that sounds uh, sounds really good. Why don't we go through each of them in a bit more detail? Sounds good, Scott. Let's do it. Okay. Well, let's hit with number one. So they understand the positive difference their organisation is making. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting one, this, Scott. And really where this sort of goes to is, is defining the why or finding the why of the organisation. You might have seen some of the work of Simon Sinek, which I know we've sort of spoken of course, about a lot yeah. at Cube, which is Start With Why. A wonderful um, narrator. Um, and if you've had, had a chance to have a look at his TED Talk, you might be able to put in the notes for this podcast. Yeah, we'll put up on the links. Yeah, well and truly worth a look. And, and really the, the nature of the message there is that um, there's an emotional connection that's built um, behind why an organisation does what it does. Mm. And really that's a visioning exercise to be able to articulate not what you do, not how you do it, but ultimately why you do it. And in public value organisations, you know, that's typically around social, economic and environmental impacts for a whole broad range of reasons. But you know, there's, not, um, there's, there's still a real mix in organisations that and leaders that are able to articulate that to their team and stakeholders well. Um, and in our experience, those, those leaders that tap into their reason for being as mm-hmm. an organisation and can really communicate to their staff that the work they're doing is making a positive difference to people's lives. And we need to remember that public value organisations exist to create a public good. So therefore, the leaders of public value organisations, it's really incumbent on them to be able to understand what does that public good look like yeah. and communicate it. Yeah, and, and we've... Uh, I, uh, made some attempts at this ourselves, haven't we? In, in, in the sense of the Public Value Compass, yeah. for example, where we've listed what we believed are eight different segments of these public value outcomes. And that's not to say any particular organisation aligns with one of them, but it certainly explores that gamut of mm. what those outcomes could be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, when, when, when you're looking at sort of visions for organisations, there's a hearts and a minds component. Mm. And when you're talking about an organisation's why, it starts with the heart. You know, it starts with the emotional connection. And, um, and that's something that, um, when we're talking about the behaviours of inspirational public leaders, the most inspirational leaders that we work with understand that and communicate it well to their team and stakeholders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, the second one. Mm. They shape a contemporary culture that excites their team. Yeah, it's an interesting one, this Scott, because um, I mean, cultures in the in the public sector is. I think it's in, we're in, entering in really interesting sort of era, really. For uh, you often hear words like modern and agile, you know, public sector organisations, mm. dynamic, fast moving. Um, but then when you look at the the way that those organisations define their culture, we're sort of seeing values that are, are written in. To be honest, look. They feel a bit stuck in the 80s, <laughs> you know, that we're writing them. So you sort of say, an organisation might say, we're dynamic, we're fast-moving, we're agile. I say, great, well, let's have a look at what your culture looks like. What are your values and behaviours? And you might sort of see this definition. It might be things like integrity, collaboration, professionalism, yeah. teamwork. Yeah. Uh, and they're very, to be honest, they're very sort of, they feel very sort of stagnant and they don't feel contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas some of the work that we're doing, and I've just actually brought a little example in with me, Scott, um, an organisation we've been working with recently and we defined four value statements for their organisation because they wanted to bring their, their kind of culture into a more modern stage. And, you know, they've got a lot of millennials working in their organisation now. The shape of the workforce is changing, the skills, like... We're not, the cultures of organisations now don't look like they did even sort of 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but often value statements and cultural definitions are not keeping pace. So here's just, this is just four from an example from a client recently. Their four value statements were, we seize opportunities, we work as one, we're authentic and we think differently. And, and that's, that to me feels contemporary. Um, there's some really interesting behaviour, I've got obviously more detail behind it. But we're moving more towards those interesting and engaging cultural um, um, shapes yeah. that, um, that people are inspired by. And it, I'm actually going to uh, focus on that, that shape 
mm. word because mm. you said that they shape these leaders shape the contemporary culture yeah. so they have a very active input don't they in both identifying those values but then really living and then pushing that those values so it's it's that difference of saying of just saying we are modern and agile but mm. actually pushing and enabling and letting that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And we're sort of seeing you know, a move towards a much more human-centered design approach as well for both strategy and culture. So yeah, that's not to say that you know, culture can't start you know, within the organization and you know, we can all work on developing and defining our culture together. Mm. But the leader needs to kind of set the conditions for that discussion to happen. Yeah. And so look, let's take our culture to be modern and agile. And yeah. let's, let's move it into the, the current state. So the leader kind of needs to sort of set that frame let the process happen and empower the team to, to have the conversation about what values and behavior, what do we stand for? We know yeah. what our why is, let's gear our culture behind it. Yeah, and, and I think we can both see, again, it, when a leader steps up and does that, you feel inspired. Yeah, absolutely. You? you really do. You. And you also you feel motivated because you can see yourself in it. Yeah. You know, like, and then I mean, the benefits that has downstream, of course, for retention, you know, um, attraction. But I just encourage anyone listening, Scott, in, in terms of their organisation, to have a look at the way that their culture is currently defined. Yeah. So is that really keeping pace yeah. with where you're going? Yeah. And if not, you know, maybe have a chat about it. Well, which is a perfect segue because number three, they are willing to challenge long-held norms. Yeah, this one's quite easy about. Uh, it, I've sort of mentioned this one in the context less about the service delivery of public value organisations and more around the way they do business, mm -hmm. if you like, so the, the operations of their business. And really this is about disruptive thinking, essentially, in terms of challenging the idea of that's how we've always done it. You know, that's how we've always run the business. That's the way that our technology, our infrastructure, our HR, our payroll um, has always been run. And we're seeing you know, a much more uh, dynamic perspective from public value leaders around those different parts of running their business um, and being willing to challenge that that's how it's always been done. Mm. I'll just pick a couple of examples, and there's many sort of parts of running a business, but if we look, for example, at technology um, in the first instance, you know, there are a range of you know, really interesting and emerging um, cloud-based collaboration tools um, which are available on the market. I mean, one that we use at Cube, which has been fantastic for our business, is Slack. Um, you know, and that's a tool where you know, there's enormous benefit for public value organisations to share knowledge, collaborate uh, in a real-time um, uh, context. Um, but again, you know, there are often sort of a perception, uh, there's often a perception that, well, you know, there's limitations around our ability to use those sorts of tools. You know, it's probably a bit hard, to be honest rather than you know, an emerging point of view around, well, why not? Why couldn't we look at our IT policy? Why couldn't we change it? Why couldn't we explore how we can embrace uh, some of these tools in a more, in a more um, speculative even, mm. uh, manner and give them a pilot, give them a trial? Um, if you then sort of look at an infrastructure perspective, for example, um, and the actual physical work environment of public value organisations, again, we're seeing you know, today's most dynamic leaders who are challenging what even a physical workspace looks like. And we had a, a CUBE planning day um, a couple of weeks ago at a, a really interesting innovation hub. Um, and it was, a, it was a fascinating space which, which had a lot of breakout areas, tactile spaces, um, brainstorming, think tanky type rooms. Um, and we, again, we're seeing an openness to talk about, well, rather than rows and rows and rows of offices and workstations, what might a next generation uh, space look like to encourage us working together more innovatively? Yeah, and, and this is a really... 
interesting point because it's, it's actually quite tied into the previous uh, point that we made, which was about shape the, shaping the contemporary culture. Mm. This is in some way some of the enabler of something like that. So uh, we all know that the environment can shape the atmosphere or the culture mm. of the place. And what we're really talking about here is saying, well, we've talked about being dynamic and we've talked about being agile and we're going to be contemporary and innovative. And we're also going to give you the tools now yeah, right. in which to do this. Yeah, and being able to commit to that, both from an investment perspective as well, because sometimes using these tools will require some of that yeah. too. Yeah. But being able to say, you know what, we're not scared of that because we're willing to give this a go. And places where we've seen that happen have seen leaps oh. in in terms of productivity, yeah. efficiency, collaboration, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And as you say, it supports the culture, Scott. You know, when we're talking about cultures of being modern and agile, then we've got, we've got to walk the talk yeah. you know, in the way yeah. that we embrace each other. Another good example is in um, you know flexible working arrangements, which mm. is a wonderful sort of you know, change that we're seeing about you know the ability for people to to work from home, you know, to be able to work part time. You know, the use of different communication tools to not necessarily have to be present day in day out, mm. um, but still to be able to be highly productive and make a really valued and positive contribution. So you know, we're seeing this challenging of norms um, occurring more regularly, and as, and as you quite rightly said, yeah, when we do and align it to our culture and our strategy, it's really beneficial. Terrific. Number four, they separate business as usual from planning and projects. Yeah, this is, this is um, you know, I've read a few papers recently, Scott, which, which talk about um, some of the areas that leaders in the public sector, um, the next generation of leaders will, will, will build their skills most strongly. And one of those is in, in project delivery. You know, I think this is actually a really powerful and important sort of concept. And when you're talking about you know, the language of projects, it is very different to the language of business as usual, as, as you, you know so well, Scott, um, being our absolute guru in all things project management. Um, but, but I mean, projects are about you know, scope, time, cost, quality, measures of success. You know, what's the purpose of the project? How do we know if we've delivered it well? How are we going to resource it? You know, as opposed to you know, the obligations in a service delivery or a program delivery environment. You know, they're, they're, just, they're very different. And it's really important for the dynamic leaders today to be able to kind of um, toggle between the two. Mm. Um, and when you're in a project space, you know, then you need to be able to think about you know, how do we best support those projects, the authorising environment for a project versus a business as usual is going to be quite different. And again, the, the leaders that we're seeing who are most inspirational in the sector understand that if you want to achieve change, projects is a massive part of that. You know, pro projects are a mechanism to implement change. And when you're looking at visions for organisations that require a transformation or a significant change in what you do, projects are highly likely to be a big part of that. And frankly, if you don't run projects well, it's very hard to achieve your vision as a leader. So um, recognising when you're in project land and not in business as usual land and creating the space to set up and run and deliver projects well um, allows today's most inspirational leaders to achieve Yeah, uh, for me, as you pointed out, I, I am quite a bit involved <laughs> in project space and a common conversation mm. or a common remark actually that I hear is often people saying, but isn't that just business as usual? Isn't that just mm. what we do? Yeah. And the problem that it has is that people then 
they, they don't buy into, they don't see the ultimate value. They don't buy into saying, oh, well, we are on, a, say, a transformation, for example, or we are actually delivering improvement. They just bundle it all together mm-hmm. into the, this is just what we do. Yes, yes. But that really starts to stagnate. And it can have a, a an effect where nothing is particularly special, or there's no transformation, there's no forward momentum. Which is not to say that you need to have change for change's sake per yeah. se, but it's that moving forward, keeping up with the times. Yeah. And so having projects gives people a clear indication of, oh, there is something a little bit above and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. That we are working towards that will change or improve the way that we work okay. and, and the value that we deliver. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good call. And look, if, again, for people listening, I mean, one of the ways that you can ask yourself, you know, you know how well are we defining our projects is to say, I'll just give you a, a quick example. I was working with an executive group across um, yeah, within government a couple of years ago and we had a really similar conversation to the one we're having now where they said, look, we've just got... We've just got you know so many projects on. So okay, well let, let's have a look at them. So let's list them on the whiteboard, for example. And so we listed about thirty projects on the whiteboard. So okay, is that all of them? Definitely done. Okay, sorted. And then I said to the group, look, let's let me start with the premise that a project has a start and an end. Would you agree with that? Yes, everyone said in the room. We would, we'd not. And so then I said, let's go back to our list of thirty. And now, how many would you take off this list because they don't have a start on it? And we whittled it down to about 10. <laughs> so it was just this interesting exercise to, to really build visibility of BAU versus projects. Projects do have a start and an end. Um, and if they're well-defined, um, you, can, you can focus on them um, and deliver them straight. And that also, it's not to take away from the BAU. No. Because you, you all, it's very important for a lot of these organisations to have that BAU because that is what they do mm. but it's useful to set, to also distinguish that so that you can support both mm. adequately yeah absolutely Scott I think that's I think the way you put it earlier around kind of you know the project being that change mechanism you know mm. over and above your BAU to ultimately improve your BAU because you're enabling your strategy yeah number five they create change readiness instead of change fatigue yeah well, this is this is something that I'm really um, seeing and, and watching with a great deal of interest across the sector that there's, there's there's some leaders um, across across public value organisations who are very intentionally and deliberately using language within their organisations that recognises how dynamic the environment is within which they operate. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is there's, you know, often, you know, even three, four, five years ago, you know, I'm sure you've heard the idea of, look, we don't want to go and run another survey, let's not run another workshop because we're in danger of change fatigue. Mm. You know, consultation fatigue. You know, we're going to, to people too many times. Um, you know, they're going to be tired of it, and we're going to get pushback. So, so that's kind of, if you like, kind of school of thought. One is sort of manage the change fatigue by not loading people up too much. The other school of thought, which is emerging and I think becoming a real trait of, of our most successful leaders, is a message that change is constant, um, and the world around us is moving quickly. Um, community expectations are shifting very quickly. The demands on the public sector are significant. Our resources are constrained. We need to keep changing if we're going to keep pace with that. Mm. And the only way to do that is to recognise that that constant state of change needs to build a, a culture and a, and, a, and, a, and a mindset of change readiness rather than a concern of change fatigue. That's not to say that you don't need to consult well, <laughs> you know, and be very thoughtful in the way that you implement that change. But this shift from fatigue to readiness is a really powerful one that's emerging, and I think we'll we'll see it as a characteristic of public value leaders in the next next few years. Yeah, I, 
I don't really have too much to add to that. I think that's spot on. Change management is has been bandied around for the past however many years now, uh, but the language really does have a significant impact mm. on what that means. Mm. So number six, they look outside their organisation for inspiration and leverage. Yeah, this one's interesting, Scotty. Um, one, Scotty, the one of the privileges we have as um, a consultancy that works across. Um, public value organisations is that we have a lot of visibility around the problems and the solutions of um, of our clients in a range of different industry segments, whether it's education, health, human services, transport, infrastructure, local government, uh, the emergency services sector, management sector. Um, and one of the things that you know, really quite quickly is noticeable as you're working on policy, strategy, project management, um, engagement type projects is that there's a lot of duplication. Um, and one of the things that the most dynamic leaders today are doing is, is reaching out to their peers and looking at what other organisations in their immediate sector or more broadly across um, the public sector are doing and leveraging it. There's a lot of great work going on out there um, and it can be accessed, it can be spoken about and it can avoid us starting from scratch. But often, you know, in the heat of battle, you know, it's easy to be quite insular and focused on your organisation. Um, and, and not initially seeking some, some inspiration and some assistance um, from elsewhere. I think that extends to um, the way that uh, the public sector um, uh, needs to look more extensively and seek inspiration from the private sector. Mm-hmm. And again, we're seeing um, perhaps some of the more um, innovative um, public sector uh, leaders who are doing that more actively. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You look at, uh, for example, recently the Vic Roads. Yeah. office, which is near the cube office. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like walking into an Apple store. It is. <laughs> little Vic Roads geniuses. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. And, you know, you look at, obviously, private sector organisations. We've spoken about the, the grilled franchise, the burger franchise, who have a fantastic little initiative there, which is sort of that evolution of corporate social responsibility where you provide it with a bottle top, you put it in a, in a jar, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's donated to a charity. So, And there's a range of other examples of organisations in the private sector that are seeking inspiration from the public sector in the way we think about social, economic and um, uh, environmental good um, to complement their private sector orientation. So really it's at the other end of the scale. I think there's an opportunity for the public sector to look more to the private sector similarly uh, for inspiration. And and this is very similar to a a big trend in terms of how organisations define their capability. So there was a innovation workshop that I went to a couple of days ago and they talked about one of the major shifts from, in, in terms of organisations from being a very knowledge-centric or knowledge capability mm-hmm. as their core value proposition mm-hmm. to being now network-centric mm-hmm. and network capability mm-hmm. as a key value proposition. Yep. And uh, examples of this would be organisations like, say, like a 3M, for example, mm-hmm. who encourage all their uh, employees to attend uh, conferences that are completely not relevant to where they are. Yep. And from that, they learn new things. Yeah, and they, they, they start to sort of cross-pollinate ideas and say, well, that's, that's really cool. I wonder if you can apply in, in this yeah. sector. Yeah. And I think what you're trying to say is, is this, basically, that uh, the, the public sector can continue to cross-pollinate and learn from the private sector and, and, and vice versa, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I mean, yeah, the private sector is in a fiercely competitive marketplace. Yeah. Uh, and in order to survive, they, they have to innovate. Yeah, so you know, we can look to that innovation um, and absolutely adapt it in a public sector context in the same way as private sector organisations are learning from the sophistication of the public sector in the way that we're addressing public value.
So number seven, last but not least, they embrace creative and digital to achieve their strategy. Yeah, this one's a really interesting one, Scott. The um, we're working with some leaders in in the public in the, in the public value space at the moment. Who a lot of the conversations we're having with them, in addition to to strategy and project delivery and the positioning of their organisations and the way that they um, and their strategic priorities about the implementation of those alongside the creative and the digital strategies that that will support it. Um, and I think there's there's a much stronger appreciation now for the importance of the, the way in which messages um, are being visually uh, represented, I think that extends then the digital space to um, the, the use of, of social media. I mean, yeah. it's, it's becoming big, I think, for today's you know, public value. But it's interesting, you see you know, some are very active on a Twitter or a LinkedIn, others are a little more timid still, yeah, and, yeah. and some sort of you know, somewhere in between. Well, well, this is a, this is an area I can jump, absolutely jump in on mm-hmm. because uh, for me, I, I look across a lot of these things, and I, I will say that a, a clarifying point mm-hmm. is that at the moment, some of the major trends, not just uh, public and private as well, is around customer experience, yeah. customer experience mapping, customer journey mapping, storytelling, mm-hmm. user experience design, all these creative elements that essentially come together to tell a story about why. It, you know, it comes back to the original, you mentioned Silent Sonic's why yeah. at the start of this podcast. It's about how do you tell that to people. And then, as part of that, is then using digital as the channel in which to, to reach those people. So it's not just saying, well, everyone's on Twitter, we've got to be on Twitter. But it's saying, all right, let's have a really good story to tell as part of it and then know how to engage people through the the channels that they prefer. Yeah, absolutely. Build up. absolutely. I think we can look, and I think, you know, it's interesting the, the conversations I referred to, Scott, that we have with, you know, today's leaders and I think it's we're learning from, for example, the marketing and advertising industry mm. where they talk about the concept of cut through. Mm. You know, where, you know, how do you get, in a noisy world, how do you get your message heard? Yeah, there are so many messages. You only need to look at a Twitter or a LinkedIn or a Facebook feed to see that you know, you're one of millions to try and get that level of, of cut through and impact with your stakeholders. And all of us do need to get our messages through as public value leaders if our organisations are going to, to achieve their goals. So you know, an important part of that is the way um, that, that visually and creatively we position and communicate those messages. Um, and utilise different sort of um, different communication and digital channels to do so. And, and certainly, I think inspirational leaders are embracing that uh, very, very quickly across mm. the sector. And not just embracing, but really actively pushing and being involved in that, and being able to say, no, 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 this is not articulating our reason for existence versus. Yeah, this this gets it. This this is the story that I want to tell. This is the the visual approach that will communicate that to the public. Yep, absolutely, Scott. Agree. Yeah. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you very much for all of that. I think that's some that's been a fascinating discussion on what we believe are the seven virtues that leaders uh, need to exhibit in order to be champions. You know, and, and, tr- and true sort of uh, change leaders in terms of uh, public value organisations. So just a quick recap of those seven virtues. Mm-hmm. Number one, they understand the positive difference their organisation is making. Number two, they shape a contemporary culture that excites their team. Three, they are willing to challenge long-held norms. Four, 
They separate business as usual from planning and projects. Five, they create change readiness instead of change fatigue. Six, they look outside their organization for inspiration and leverage. And finally, seven, they embrace creative and digital to achieve their strategy. Ben, thanks for joining me on this podcast, uh, and thank you very much for your insights. Uh, for our listeners, we hope you enjoy the podcast. We'll, of course, list these seven virtues on our website, and if you go to www.cubegroup.com.au and just navigate to the Ideas in Action page, you'll be able to find a link there and uh, to some of the, uh, the links that we talked about throughout the podcast. We hope you enjoyed, and uh, we hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Thanks, Thanks you. Sure.